It's Wednesday, June 17th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. President Trump has signed an executive order on police reform that calls on police departments to increase training on use of force, limit the use of chokeholds, and create a national database for police misconduct. While falling short of the sweeping changes that activists are calling for, it does signal that the president is willing to work with Congress on police reforms. Tolu Olorunipa, White House reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for more. Next, lawyers in the Golden State Killer case have reached a deal for Joseph James D'Angelo to plead guilty to charges of murder and rape and avoid a death penalty trial and instead impose a life sentence. Victims of some of the crimes have expressed both relief and anger at this outcome. Sam Stanton, reporter at the Sacramento Bee, joins us for this new deal for the Golden State Killer. Finally, many people have a problem with tech companies tracking your location in order to send you ads. But during the coronavirus pandemic, some governments are okay with it. Public health officials are setting aside privacy concerns as they use location data to track the movement of people to help inform them on how to reopen economies. Patience Hagen, reporter, Wall Street Journal, joins us for how we are always being tracked. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Under the executive order I'm signing today, we will prioritize federal grants from the Department of Justice to police departments that seek independent credentialing, certifying that they meet high standards, and in fact, in certain cases, the highest standard. That's where they do the best on the use of force and de-escalation training. Joining us now is Tulu Olorunipa, White House reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Tulu. Great to be here. Wanted to talk about the new executive order that President Trump signed on police reform. It's called the Safe Policing for Safe Communities. Among a few other things, it seemed like the two biggest takeaways is that President Trump was encouraging the limiting of the use of chokeholds, and he wanted to create a national database for police misconduct. It seemed like the executive order fell a little short of what most activists had really been calling for throughout all of this. But Tulu, tell us about the executive order and what we know about it. He essentially is calling on police departments to try to follow best practices, try to follow professional standards, and try to de-escalate when possible so that we don't see as many instances of people losing their lives at the hands of police. It also essentially tried to encourage police officers not to use chokeholds. Now, the definition of chokehold in this executive order, if you dig down into it, is very specific. So it would still allow for some of the kinds of maneuvers that have been so critical in many people losing their lives and the activists have spoken out about. So there are a lot of things in this executive order that activists are really, really happy about. Obviously, they will take what they can get from a president who has sided with the police more often than not. But they think that this is a half measure and a lot of activists are looking to Congress for more fulsome acts that may go closer to the kinds of things that they are calling for. Police departments across the country are going to have to really take the steps on their own to really implement some of these changes. I think there's the number of 18,000 police departments across the country. So there's a lot of work to be done there. But what the president wanted to do also was leverage federal grant money to encourage local departments to take action around these, these best practices, as we've kind of been talking about. How would that work? 
one of the pieces of authority that the executive branch has and that the executive of the executive branch and, and the president has is to sort of use the power of the purse strings to essentially try to encourage local governments, local officials, local departments who rely on federal funding to follow certain practices, saying that if you don't follow certain practices or if you have a pattern of abuse or if you're being too aggressive with unarmed people, then the federal government is not going to give you as much money or some of this money is going to be contingent on you following some of these practices that we call best practices. So the president has some authority to do that. The Congress also has authority to condition money on specific actions by local officials. And that seems to be much more in line with what Republicans like. Democrats have been pushing for some of these bans, some of these national laws, national policies that would essentially restrict local governments from doing certain things that are going to be outlawed if the Democrats' bill comes into place. What the president and what several Republicans are calling for is more of an optional approach where states and local officials will have the final say on what they do, but if they do certain things, they will not get funding from the federal government. So it still allows some of that federalism that Republicans embrace, allowing states and local officials to choose their own path and not have certain things outlawed and outright banned nationwide. They want to have sort of a more piecemeal approach that gives local officials and local entities the ability to decide what they want to do only with the warning that if they do certain things, then they may lose out on federal funding. The way the president delivered this speech, he very much held to his law and order message that he's been talking about lately. One of the things that was kind of missing from the speech, though, was talking about racism or the systemic racism and racial profiling in law enforcement. We didn't hear anything about that. He said there's only a tiny portion of cops that are bad. And for the large part, that's probably true. There's a lot of good people in law enforcement, but he made no mention of that, you know, how people experience law enforcement when they're out there. So the president has been very, very reluctant to even talk about race when it comes to policing. We heard his speech. He spoke for a long time and he talked about all manner of different things. And he even talked about a small percentage of police who do the wrong thing, but he didn't see any systemic problems or didn't speak about the race issues that have plagued policing in the past and the history of police being used to enforce racial injustice in past decades. That's not something the president wants to acknowledge. He does not want to really have that debate. And it was very clear during his speech today that even though millions of people have taken to the street to declare Black Lives Matter and to focus specifically on racial injustice in policing, President Trump has not felt the need to make that a major part of his proposal. I think many would probably think it's a missed opportunity not to say something about that, that even despite saying that he had privately spoken with groups of families of people who have lost relatives to police violence, families of Ahmad Arbery and others. He mentioned them. He said that he spoke to them, but he didn't say anything beyond that, which sounded like a missed opportunity for him to address it in a larger way. He said the names of a large number of people of color who have died at the hands of police and Some people will take that as an olive branch, as a gesture. We haven't heard President Trump even saying those names, and that's been a big part of the movement, sort of keeping these people's memories alive by saying their names. So in some ways, the president gave a little bit of an olive branch, but that was as far as he was willing to go. He did not say anything about racial injustice, even though a large number of these families believe that their loved ones were killed in part because of their race. And a large number of the people who are going out to the streets to protest believe that racial injustice in policing is a major problem that needs to be fixed. President Trump has just not been willing to acknowledge that. And a large part of it is a number of people in his base do not want to go down the road of acknowledging racial injustice as a major part of America's 
problems right now, and President Trump is very much aligned with his base. He does not want to acknowledge race as a significant problem or a significant issue. He would rather talk about things that are not directly related to race, but things that he thinks that can be fixed. Things like restricting chokeholds and trying to get more money into mental health and trying to increase community policing, things that are universal and not race-specific. Those are the types of things that the president wants to focus on. But I think as long as he continues to ignore the racial element, and in some cases inflame some of the racial elements, like calling protesters thugs and talking about unleashing dogs and shooting looters, then he's not going to be able to really solve the root of the problem. He's going to continue to see animosity from people in the streets who are protesting not only police brutality, but also his very administration. Tolu Olorunipa, White House reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I wanted the preliminary hearing, which is essentially like a pre-trial where we were going to have witnesses. But because of the virus, I don't know that we had any other options. A lot of the witnesses are quite a bit older than I am, and I'm 58. This has been my whole adult life. And so I know it's important that I don't want anybody else to die because of D'Angelo. It's important we protect their health. Joining us now is Sam Stanton, reporter at the Sacramento Bee. Thanks for joining us, Sam. Thanks for having me. We have an update in the Golden State Killer East Area Rapist case. The lawyers in this case believe that they have reached a deal in which Joseph James D'Angelo Jr. is going to plead guilty. This is at a hearing coming up on June 29th. This would avoid a death penalty trial and instead just have a life sentence imposed. Sam, tell us about it. What do we know? Well, we know that they've been working on this for months and months. The Defense obviously was trying to avoid the death penalty, and the prosecution was trying to avoid a massive years-long trial. So they finally came to an arrangement where he'll walk into court, supposedly on the 29th, and he will plead guilty not only to the 26 um, counts he currently faces, which is 13 murder counts and 13 kidnap for robbery counts that are associated with sexual assaults, but he also will admit guilt, we're told, in some fashion to an additional 62 counts related to other attacks over the years. It's not clear yet whether those will actually be filed as counts or if they will be uncharged uh, counts that he has to admit to. Now, in a lot of ways, this deal makes sense. When you think about what's going on with coronavirus right now, and a lot of the witnesses and people who would be testifying are very elderly. So the logistics of going through a trial and having them come in and testify and and go through all that would be pretty difficult. And the other thing is the death penalty in California. There's a moratorium put on on that by the governor, Governor Gavin Newsom. So in a lot of ways, this deal does make a lot of sense. What the prosecution really wanted to do was get through the preliminary hearing. They were planning on as many as 150 witnesses over an eight-week time span. And they wanted that so that they could give the victims and the family members of deceased victims a chance to tell their story on the stand. That was very important to a lot of them. But because of coronavirus, because of all the limitations on the courts, the prelim was supposed to start in May. And of course, it got pushed back to August. And it just looked like that was going to be more and more difficult. There are witnesses all over the country in their 80s and 90s who would be expected to travel for that, and it just didn't make sense. And so in terms of that and in terms of the overall cost of taking this thing to court, 
it just made more sense to cut this deal. One of the other interesting things about the 29th hearing and related to coronavirus as well is that a lot of times these hearings have been in pretty cramped courtrooms and they're looking for a larger venue so they can practice social distancing. They expect a lot of spectators. The media is going to be there, family and victims and family members of the victims are going to be there as well. So they're looking for a larger venue to do that as well. We're talking about possibly hundreds of people between the family members and the victims and the, uh, the media and the spectators. And so the courtrooms that we've been using have been on the first floor of the county jail building, and they typically hold a few dozen people all told, and the media are all crammed up shoulder to shoulder. It's a very cramped space. So they have been looking at odd places outside of court buildings, such as Memorial Auditorium. There's been talk of the convention center. We still haven't been able to nail down where this is. I'm told that they're close to making a decision, but obviously it's going to require a great amount of security and a great amount of space. How do the victims and their family members feel about this possible deal? I imagine they're on both sides. I had been reading that they wanted to go through the trial because they wanted him to face the evidence. But as we'd been talking about, this deal does make some sense. A lot of them really wanted at least to see the preliminary hearing so that they could take the stand. But I talked to a couple yesterday and they understood the decision. They get that this thing, if it actually went to trial, it would be one of the biggest trials in California history. If it went to trial, it would take years. And he's 74, I believe. There's no telling how long he'd be around for something like this. So they have accepted it. They were briefed on it individually on June 1st or thereabouts and asked to keep quiet about it. But of course, words started to leak out. And there obviously weren't any vociferous objections, or we would have heard about it earlier, I suspect. Sam Stanton, reporter at the Sacramento Bee, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Governments are finding this data can be really useful to help them understand whether their citizens are complying with lockdown policies or social distancing policies. Joining us now is Patience Hagen, reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Patience. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about these tech firms and how they're constantly spying on us. We already knew this was happening. This has been an ongoing thing, an ongoing discussion about our privacy and these companies tracking our location data. It happens all the time. You download an app, you activate location services, and these companies can track where you're moving. But in the time of coronavirus pandemic, a lot of those rules are kind of going out of the window. Uh, you know, a lot of governments are even saying that that's OK, despite, you know, before this, trying to work on legislation to limit this. Now they need these, this data more than ever to track people that might be sick and, and to help reopen the economies. Patients, tell us a little bit about this. There's so much interesting things going on with this. Exactly. Some of the lawmakers that before were very skeptical of these companies and were calling for them to be reined in are now happily working with them and wanting to tap into this data to monitor their population. Governments are finding this data can be really useful to help them understand whether their citizens are complying with lockdown policies or social distancing policies. During a pandemic, surveillance starts to feel like it's going to protect you instead of like something scary. So a lot of a lot of governments are reaching for it in that in that mode of reasoning. 
in California, one particular instance, Governor Gavin Newsom was using data from Foursquare Labs to figure out if the beaches were getting too crowded. And there was this one weekend in particular where some of the beaches started reopening. Everybody turned out because it was hot that weekend. And immediately, like the next day, Gavin Newsom was like, all right, I'm shutting down the beaches all over again. But they were using this location data to see that, in fact, there were a lot of people turning out to the beaches. And in Denver, they were monitoring people that were moving, you know, a certain distance from their house to say, okay, these people are not quarantining anymore. So this is kind of how it's been flipped on its head now. Exactly. Cities are looking to this to understand how much freedom should we give people? You know, if we if we let them have the beach, are they going to take it too far? They're, they're using that to evaluate their moves. It's living proof that our phones can snitch on us. One of the companies that you guys talked about in your article is X-Mode Social. And they're a big player in this. Uh, they're working with some different uh, states. They're, uh, I think, some federal. Uh, they're providing data to some federal agencies like the CDC. And there's a lot of money that's associated with this as well. Talk about that. That's right. In some, in some cases, money is exchanged. In other cases, they agree to work with government clients for free. But for Xmode specifically, I think they had something if you wanted to get some type of 12-month subscription to their data. I mean, they could be charging up to $600,000. Xmode collects a lot of data that's collected through various commercial apps on your phone. If you, the user, grants that app access to your location, that data can be freely sold and resold. Xmode is one of the aggregators that ends up with it. They don't publish any apps of their own, but they, they collect all this data and bundle it up for clients. Talk about some of the privacy issues with this, because as we mentioned, you know, beforehand when it was for ad targeting purposes, it was more of a problem. Now, because we're trying to track people to help limit the spread of coronavirus, people have kind of eased off on it. But you mentioned in the article, there was a, a moment in Kansas where tensions broke out against state lawmakers and privacy advocates when it was revealed that they were using this type of data to, to track residents there. Kansas lawmakers became concerned that the data might not be as anonymized uh, as the company says it is. For instance, uh, numerous studies have found that even in anonymized data, it can be pretty easy to figure out who those anonymous people are. And that was the concern of Kansas lawmakers. The company itself, Unicast, maintains that the data, uh, that they only share kind of aggregate insights with governments. They never share the raw data, uh, the level at which that could be done. But basically, this practice as a whole raises the eyebrows of some privacy-conscious individuals who are concerned that governments might grow used to this data and maybe begin to tap into it for other purposes and begin to use the raw data itself. Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting uh, just kind of seeing the the evolution of how this location tracking data is being used, you know, from ads and now to this to to track people and, and see their movements. And as you mentioned, you know, to to see if they're practicing that social distancing, if they're quarantining, all of that. This is not going to go away because we still have some time to deal with the coronavirus pandemic. And, you know, some states have even said, hey, we might need to impose new lockdowns, things like that. So it's going to be interesting to see how this discussion of location tracking and all this data uh, continues to play a part in all of this. Absolutely. We're just getting started. Patience Hagen, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.